Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by the delightful Dr. James Kim, an experienced general practitioner who specializes in the study and treatment of chronic diseases, particularly diabetes and chronic migraine. He's a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Calgary, Canada, which is a lovely part of the world that I've been privileged to visit. Dr. Kim also sees patients in several emergency rooms across the Alberta province. After graduating from medical school in South Africa, he moved to Alberta in 2009, completing a postgraduate diploma in diabetes in 2012. Dr. Kim works as a peer reviewer and editorial board member for numerous medical journals, including for EMJ, the host organization of this podcast, and has given several presentations locally and nationally on diabetes, chronic migraine, binge eating disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, and respiratory medicine, to name a few. He also recently led a fascinating webinar for EMJ entitled The Curious Case of SGLT2 Inhibitor, From the Apple Tree to Shifting Paradigm, which I must say was very well received. Dr. Kim serves in a number of integral roles within Diabetes Canada, such as being a steering committee member for the Clinical Practice Guidelines Group and is current co-chair of the Primary Care Special Interest Group. He's also been a dissemination and implementation member and a member of the Scientific Planning Committee for the annual Diabetes Canada Conference. Additionally, Dr. Kim is part of the Education Committee for ADHD for the Canadian ADHD Resource Alliance. In his free time, and I'm astonished that he has any, James enjoys spending time with his family and playing tennis. Dr. James Kim, welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. It would be nice if we could be in person. but <laughs> It would, wouldn't it? And, and for the benefit of the audience, uh, we were discussing uh, Dr. Kim's heritage from Korea and comparing notes on a football player by the name of Hyung Min Son, proper football, that is, played with a feet and with a ball, uh, <laughs> who plays for, for Tottenham Hotspur, which is the team that I support and discover that Dr. Kim also uh, supports and likes. So we've got that in common as well. (laughs) So James, so as someone who's been fortunate to see healthcare around the world, I'm always fascinated by how others interpret that experience. You completed your medical degree, as I said, in South Africa. How do you think that contributes to your style of care as a general practitioner? Because I'm sure there are differences in what one one sees, and we're going to come on to that. But Tell, tell us about your training and, and how it's impacted you as a doctor. Yeah, so, so I was born in Korea um, and had a pleasure of seeing the healthcare systems in Korea, South Africa, and now in Canada. Now, I'm not a big fan of extreme uh, privatized healthcare systems that we see in Korea where literally the money talks. And I don't think it's, um, it's really good. And yeah, I think it actually does more harm than good. So, so I'll leave that one out. So I, that's, um, that's, I can tell you, that's going to raise a few hackles. And uh, before you, well, I'll tell you what, carry on. And then I want to come back to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I finished my internship uh, in my medical school training in South Africa and then moved to Canada. Um, so I have never formally worked in South Africa independently, but I did work as a medical student and as an intern in a resource deprived public hospitals. 
my internship was at one of the most dangerous and poorest part of South Africa. Um, so the living conditions in those communities are like absolutely unimaginable uh, if you've never experienced such a place. Well, tell, tell us about it. Oh, my goodness. So, for example, um, uh, in Canada, if we do a round uh, in the hospital, in the university hospital, and if someone were sitting in chairs, then they would be considered unacceptable. Um, in South Africa, uh, if you're waiting in the uh, emergency department, uh, and if there are chairs to sit on, then, then that's a blessing. I remember there were rounds that we actually had to um, walk over some of the people lying on the floor because there was just no uh, room for them to sit um, when, when actually lie on the bed. So even things like that. I mean, uh, in those areas, some people don't have chance to even take a shower for weeks, not because they w don't want to, but it's there's just not enough resources. So um, sometimes the running water is a uh, luxury as well. Um, I remember I went to the rural hospitals in, uh, in South Africa, and this is like really rural <laughs> where there's no water, no, no running water, electricity and so on. So, and we hear complaints, uh, in uh, North America, if there is a water shortage, um, or water or electricity get cut for a few hours, then people complain massively. I'm thinking, nah, you guys have <laughs> seen anything yet. The rural North America is also very different to, um, North Africa as well. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, the living conditions uh, in some of these areas is, is absolutely uh, amazing. Um, hence, I'm not surprised that their life expectancy is also not as good as, let's say, uh, people that lives in a more affluent areas of South Africa or in North America or Europe, actually, for that matter. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think I really learned to appreciate life in general um, and also what we have, what we can afford, and also learned that we cannot and should not take anything for granted. Um, since I've worked in such difficult places, I came to Canada and I think I naturally gravitated towards um, more low socioeconomic areas uh, in Calgary. And uh, I enjoyed helping these people in real needs, um, people who have not been well managed or neglected by the society. And watching their health improve uh, has been really, really gratifying. And I think um, driving for half an hour every day to work and another half an hour back from work uh, through traffic and, and sometimes through some dangerous um, areas, but seeing these people uh, really improve in terms of their health, it's amazing. I actually feel like, yeah, I'm actually becoming a doctor. <laughs> and I think um, this experience and appreciation really came from my uh, experience in Africa. So your, your, your observation about private healthcare systems, when I, I practiced in America for many, many years, and when I would talk to my American colleagues about the system in Britain, which is not without its problems, just like the system in Canada, just like any healthcare yeah. system. But my American colleagues were astonished to learn that their British uh, compatriots financially did every bit as well as they did, but without <laughs> having to deal with all the issues of, of billing and running a business. So, you know, there are so many mis misapprehensions. And frankly, I balk at the term socialized healthcare. It just means that there's one central payor and that access to healthcare doesn't depend on 
you know, how thick your wallet is. And, you know, I concur with you that that should be the case. So let's, let's drill down a little bit further. What are some of the, you, you've mentioned some of the, the issues that poverty and um, dangerous environments can have and poor resources. But what about ways that what you saw in South Africa different from Canada? I'm sure there are some diseases that you just don't see in Canada that you saw in South Africa or disease prevalence differences, you know, diseases of the, you know, like obesity is an issue in, in the developed nations. Yeah. Um, so uh, from uh, like acute cases, uh, even trauma, uh, trauma cases, um, we used to see gunshot wounds on daily basis. Um, I used to assist in the open heart surgery because um, knife went through or a gun bullet went through the heart. Um, and we used to see that on a regular basis. Um, I used to do uh, procedures that I was told that only certain European um, thoracic surgeons would do. Um, it was a bit baffling that you need to be a thoracic surgeon to do, let's say, pleural tap, for example. Um, but, but anyway, I mean, we were, I was doing this since when I was in medical school um, because the need's there. Um, so even just with a trauma alone, um, it is massive. And here um, you'll see the trauma surgeons who will never see gunshot wound in their life uh, or in their career uh, or to think that a bullet went through the heart. I mean, that's unimaginable in Canada. And actually, you know, I'll tell you a story. So um, my parents came to visit Canada. So they were living in South Africa. Um, and uh, they were watching a news and my dad screamed. <laughs> he, uh, he called me like, what kind of country has, um, has a main news where it's all about a deer crossing the road and it's causing traffic? That is like... <laughs> It's unreal. Like, what kind of country is this? So he just couldn't uh, believe uh, that he was actually watching such news, making headlines uh, coming from South Africa. I mean, and and when you, when you look at the medical issues, uh, unfortunately, in South Africa, HIV/AIDS uh, have seriously ravaged ravaged through South Africa big time, and to a point that we assume that everybody that comes into the hospital for whatever reason, whether it's like a sprained ankle or whatever were HIV positive. And uh, I think there was uh, one study when I was in medical school that showed that up to 70% of the patients in hospital were HIV positive. So it's unreal. So we saw a lot of HIVs and HIV related comorbidities such as TB. So for example, if someone coughed, it's like, okay, that's TB, right? And uh, if patient improved on TB medication and they start coughing again, I mean, it could be allergies, but the first thing that came to our mind was like, okay, that, that must be TB. So everything was like TB, 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 or HIV related. Um, if someone had diarrhea, we thought, like, okay, that's HIV related colitis, most likely. Um, wow. So, and that was the case, and it was real. I mean, that's how bad this HIV AIDS um, is ravaging through the country. Um, if someone had the uh, schizophrenia, I mean, one of the first things that we had to rule out is that is that HIV related as well. Um, so, so that that is really unfortunate. Um, but in Canada, if someone were to cough, then the uh, differential diagnosis actually broadens massively compared to what I was used to in South Africa. Um, so it's not just TB that comes to the top of my mind. Um, if someone has diarrhea, then I don't think it's HIV-related colitis or TB. So what I'm trying to say is that the uh, the variety of medical conditions that we see in Canada is having quite fun and and it's quite interesting and. And you may know this, but Canada is, and I didn't know this when I first came to Canada, 
that this country is actually one of the biggest melting pot in the world uh, in terms of ethnicities and um, uh, and race. So we actually see a lot of um, uh, medical conditions that we may not have seen, uh, let's say, 30, 40 years ago um, because of the influx of immigrants. Um, so we get to see lots of fascinating medical conditions. Um, so. So just even that alone has been quite fun, challenging, um, because I do work in the immigrant population. Uh, so I work among the immigrant population in the immigrant communities. Um, and also Canada has more medication choices and options than South Africa. So it makes things, medicine, so much more fun and interesting um, and gratifying in a way as well. So tell me and our audience, what inspired you to specialize in treating some of the chronic diseases such as diabetes and migraine? Yeah, so I always felt that the chronic disease management is where the battle of health is won in terms of patients' morbidity and mortality uh, in, most case, in most cases, obviously. Um, diabetes is an interesting one because it's a condition that I absolutely hated. <laughs> dealing with that. Whenever I saw a patient with diabetes, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do because uh, my training wasn't very good. Well, at least um, I don't think I received enough training uh, in diabetes because we were focused on HIV and trauma. Um, then I realized that as a general practitioner that I cannot get away from diabetes at all. I mean, diabetes was everywhere. You know, it's in psychiatry, and dermatology, and obstetrics and so on. So I felt that I was ill-equipped to deal with diabetes, so I took a uh, postgrad diploma through UK, actually, uh, in diabetes. And uh, um, just after I graduated, that's when some of the major researches and data were conducted and announced. So I think I just got into the world of diabetes uh, before the explosion of diabetes data came out. So. Uh, so I think I got in just at the right time and uh, I'm absolutely loving it because I feel like, hey, you know what, I can actually do this and make some difference in patient's life. Now, migraine is another interesting condition because I used to hate that too. So, so I'm, I'm a bit scared because there are a few other medical conditions that I don't really enjoy. So, but the thing about migraine is that I just could not comprehend that people could get that sick and that much disabled from headache because I just couldn't relate to it. I was thinking, you know, are these just drug seekers, you know, um, just want to get some opioid um, because that's all I knew uh, back then in terms of migraine treatment. But, but I mean, I don't know if you knew that the WHO classified acute migraine episode as one of the worst, most disabling conditions in the world that human can experience. They actually classified it uh, that it's more disabling than paraplegia and deafness and blindness and so on. My goodness, no, I did not know that. It's ab- it's it's mind blowing. Um, if you'll forgive the pun, yes, literally mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, and, and here I was thinking that you know how can a headache cause such a debilitating? Uh, I mean, how can it be such a debilitating condition, right? Well, well, I'll tell you what. Let, let, let's move on to and get drilled down a little bit because I'm, I'm fascinated by headaches. I didn't know that, that, that WHO characterized it uh, as such. And I'm fascinated by the etiology of headaches. And I think that some are caused by muscular tension in the occipitalis or the, the cranial aponeurosis, tension headaches. But I know that one of your preferred methods for treating chronic migraine is by injecting Botox which is something I know absolutely nothing about. So can you please explain <laughs> how that works and why that's been such an appeal for you? 
Yes. So Botox is, as you know, it's a neurotoxin that uh, helps to relax the muscle. Or, I I believe it was initially designed for cosmetic reasons only. So um, the interesting story is that the, uh, there was a, um, a plastic surgeon who was injecting uh, Botox for cosmetic reasons and uh, realized that uh, some of these patients were actually improving uh, in terms of their migraines. And then more research went on. Um, and that's basically how the Botox in chronic migraine was born. <laughs> It um, basically the way it works is that it's not actually relaxing the muscle um, because that's what a lot of people think. And that's what I used to think as well. Uh, so relaxing the muscles, therefore your tension goes down and that's how your migraine gets improved. But it's not actually. Um, it actually helps to um, reduce some of the pain molecules such as CGRP, glutamate and so on from being released from the presynaptic region. So it prevents these molecules to be released at the synapses. Therefore, the pain signals gets reduced, and that's how the Botox works, um, not just by relaxing the muscle. And, and relaxing the muscles, and uh, another byproduct of relaxing the muscles, obviously, getting rid of some of the wrinkles, um, which is a fortunate um, side effect <laughs> to some people. So, um, but yeah, but at the end of the day, it's really the uh, prevention of the pain molecules from being released. Well, well, well. So there you go. Who knew? Um... So I just want to go back a little bit. Um, I mentioned in my intro that you uh, had participated in a, a webinar for EMJ, uh, Curious Case of SGLT2 Inhibitors from Apple Tree to Shifting Paradigm. Tell us yep. about this topic and why it's important. Yes. Yeah, so, so in 2015, uh, there was a trial that got released called Empiric trial. And it's the first time that a diabetes medication actually saves lives, regardless of the blood glucose reduction. And this particular trial was using a medication called empagliflozin, which is one of the SGLT2, um, which basically changed the paradigm um, of how we treat diabetes. Now we have data to show that you know you can do tons of other things, such as delaying worsening of the nephropathy, reduction of heart renal outcome, that the renal world has not seen for decades. And I mean, I'll tell you, some uh, are projecting that there could even be a delay in dialysis and the renal transplant up to 15 years. I mean, that is a massive, massive number. Now, wow. we also have data that it can safely improve heart failures and prevention of the heart failures uh, or the hospitalization for heart failure uh, when you use this class of drug, whether you have diabetes or not, uh, and also reduces cardiovascular death in some cases, and the list goes on. This is a medication derived from apple tree to lower the uh, the blood glucose, yet it has so much pleiotrophic effect in human body to a point that we now wonder if this is really a uh, diabetes drug or if it's a cardiology or nephrology medication that just happens to lower the blood, uh, blood glucose. Um, so it must be one of the most paradigm shifting uh, thing that has happened in the diabetes world in past decades, really. So, so that's why I think um, as a healthcare providers, we should really be uh, familiar with this uh, class of drug called SGLT2 inhibitors. And and you said that it's it's derived from apple trees. Yes, initially, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't I didn't know that. So it's, I love these these stories. So truly, an apple a day keeps the doctor off. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe add bark to that as well. <laughs> oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> yes. Oh dear. Um, so we've talked a little bit about obesity um, in North America, um, and I have sadly noted that my the country of my birth, Britain, is becoming more obese, and the world's getting more obese, and that's now the fundamental food threat rather than starvation. Although, of course, 
the situation in Ukraine is bringing that spectre back mm-hmm. up again. In yeah. your experience as a practitioner, what notable changes and developments have you seen in the treatment of diabetes other than the SGLT2 inhibitors? And what do you think the future of diabetes treatment may look like if we can't get people to stop eating us so much? Mm-hmm. I mean, you say that UK is becoming more obese and so is the world. North America, it's at another level, I think. Um, so when I first came to uh, Canada, I saw so many obese patients uh, to a point that I actually wondered if the BMI criteria for obesity was different in North America because it was just so absurd. I mean, we do know that the weight reduction in most people living with diabetes, especially in type 2 diabetes, will lower um, their blood sugar level. And even just 10% of the weight loss actually has a massive benefit to their um, diabetes and hypertension and, and cardiovascular disease and so on. So there are a lot of focus in the diabetes world on weight reduction through many uh, different means, such as uh, medical nutrition uh, interventions and certain medications. I've mentioned SGLT2 inhibitors, but more so with the GLP-1 receptor agonist, which are now being used a lot for obesity management as well. I think in the future, uh, we'll be using predominantly medications that treat diabetes, but also helps to lose weight as well. And there are more coming on the horizon. So um, there are medications that we're expecting in Canada sometime next year that seems to help uh, patients to lose about 17% of the body weight. And it's a diabetes medication. There's another one that is uh, coming out in a couple of years time that helps people to lose up to 20% of the body weight while reducing the blood glucose. And and these are diabetes drugs. And I can guarantee you that these companies will probably look into these drugs as an obesity medication. So if you think that the bariatric surgery can help to reduce 30% of the weight reduction with lots of potential complications, um, and we have these medications that can actually go somewhere close to that, I think uh, we're in uh, uh, golden days of uh, diabetes and, and obesity management or the dawn of it. Well, that's fascinating. So we've, we've talked about uh, um, uh, a, a couple of um, chronic disease conditions. Uh, let's move on to another that I find fascinating, but also sociologically fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been a serving member on the Education Committee for ADHD for the Canadian Resource Alliance. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how attitudes towards conditions like ADHD have changed and what further work needs to be done to help patients and reduce the stigma. But I also wonder, are we going about ADHD the right way? Should the world not adapt to those with a different approach to learning rather than medicating people to fit in? And I wonder if, you know, Maybe if we had ADHD medications, many of the great poets, painters, musicians wouldn't have, wouldn't have been as good. And if people haven't seen it, I don't know if you've seen it, but Sir Ken Robinson gave an excellent TED talk on education and how maybe we need to rethink how we educate. It's a bit of a broad question, but I just want to give you license to, to riff as you see fit. Okay. Okay. No, that, that's a very interesting point. You know, actually, when I was in medical school, I uh, had this friend. Uh, she went through art high school, and uh, she said there were days where these bunch of art students couldn't come up with any creativity, so they actually had to go to the back alley and smoke some marijuana, and they could come back and uh, and come up with some like amazing ideas, which was like quite fascinating. So yeah. So anyway, so there is a lot of stigma on ADHD, especially in the Asian community. Um, it's like one of those conditions that you know your kids can have ADHD because it's so common, 
but not my kids. You know, that's, uh, that's the attitude that I get from a lot of parents. So the way I explain that is that, you know, it's basically, it's like some chemical issues in the brain. It's like, you know, people with type one diabetes, you know, they just don't have cells that produce insulin uh, or those cells are damaged. So it's kind of similar thing, but it just happens in the brain. Um, so that's kind of how I go about uh, doing this. Um, the stigma around ADHD um, in Canada is actually not that bad because I think Canada is one of the uh, leading country in the world when it comes to ADHD, especially in kids. Um, really? So, oh, yes, really? yes. Yeah. Why? Um, why? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. So we do have some world-renowned uh, professors in uh, in ah. ADHD, and actually one of them actually lives in Calgary. So I got to know him ah. quite well. So, so when you're at, is is this a case of when you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail? Uh, as in, if you've got experts in the yeah. field, they're going to yeah. see a lot of ADHD, and if you don't have any experts, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> I think the awareness has improved for sure. I mean, right. the amount of uh, ADHD that we have missed uh, when they were uh, when the adults were children is massive. We are diagnosing adult ADHD like a lot, <laughs> a lot, especially during pandemics. And uh, but what I think what's really important is that uh, even up to recent years, we were treating ADHD to improve people's functions. So kids will do better at school, and the adults will. Uh, be more productive at work and so on. But now we are actually getting some very grave data regarding ADHD. So I think we should uh, change the way we think. So for example, if the child has ADHD and, and they're not and he or she is not treated, then it actually affects their brain development. So MRI studies show that there is a decreased brain development in prefrontal cortex where the executive function is made, along with a few other areas. So, um, and there are some other studies that shows that the actual estimated weight of brain decreases if they do not take medication. That's one um, major problem because now we are seeing ADHD not as just a mental health condition, but it's actually a neurodevelopmental condition. The premature death rate in their teens and in their 20s is massive. There is an estimated uh, premature death rate of four times higher. From what causes, James? Oh, it's mostly it's um, impulsivity um, th that is not. So they commit commit suicide, in other words. Commit suicide, dr uh, drug overdose, speeding, uh, making uh, irrational decisions. Um, because I mean, I think there's some studies that shows that even up to twenty five percent of the people in prison um, have ADHD, um, and if they were treated, they probably weren't there. There was one. Uh, observation uh, made by one of the uh, uh, the local psychi forensic psychiatrists who says that even up to seventy percent of the people in the uh, uh, in the prison probably have ADHD as well. So, no, this is massive. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, premature death of four times higher that that's unreal. Uh, that's four hundred percent increase in death rate. And uh, and I mentioned the trial Empereg, um, which would reduce the death rate by thirty odd percent. And the people in the audience uh, of that particular conference apparently stood up and they clapped like as if it was a rock concert. Um, but this is like four hundred percent. This is a massive. It impacts the social life, work life, relationship, incarceration, unwanted pregnancy, teenage pregnancy, um, injuries, uh, breaking bones, fractures. It's it's absolutely astonishing. Um, so this should be seen as a, a neurodevelopmental condition in children, and I think it should be considered as a life-saving treatment in, in adults. There's some small studies to show that if you have ADHD and other chronic diseases. 
um, and chronic conditions, let's say diabetes, hypertension, and if their ADHD is not treated, then their other conditions will get worse as well. Um, so I think it is a condition that we should actually uh, put a little more focus on. Well, thank you very much for that. You've certainly educated me and you've changed my mind about it. I've, I've clearly got to do a lot of reading. It's, it's astonishing that the older I get, the stupider I get, <laughs> certainly from the perspective of um, my offspring. There you go. Um, so um, a broader question for you, James, climate change and chronic disease. Well, yeah, uh, It's a question where I think we have a responsibility as physicians to think about what's our role as doctors in what's been to date a rather fractious topic. You know, there's been a lot of political focus, which is now dissipating because it's apparent, oh dear, yes, this is real. So what about climate change and chronic disease? What are your thoughts? Oh, uh, the, the climate uh, change is uh, seen as one of the um, uh, major, if not probably the major um, uh, public health emergency, uh, not even urgency, it's an emergency uh, that faces us. Um, uh, it, the 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 impact that climate uh, change has in human is just is unreal. Uh, starting from mental health, uh, it affects the mental health in a way that we probably have never seen before. Um, the access to food, to water, uh, uh, resources, um, it's just been um, really really sad. Um, as a healthcare provider, I think. Um, I think it's such a broad question. Yeah, so I watched a couple of um, uh, lectures and I attended lectures on this and I just came, uh, I just come out and, and think that, wow, it's just so much uh, that we have to do as an individual, um, not just as a healthcare providers. Um, I, I don't even know how I can go through this in... Um, well, maybe, maybe it's simply that as doctors, would you agree that we need to be involved in this debate and talking about it and when we're seeing stuff, sharing it with people. I mean, I was talking to a pulmonary expert who, who, who made the point that they're seeing more disease and more bad disease and expect it to get worse. Yes, yes, especially in the pulmon pulmonology world, yeah, as yeah. well. Um, and actually in the infectious disease world, they are seeing some changes as well. Um, so recently I wrote some, uh, some article um, on malaria um, and just looking at the uh, other infectious disease that uh, should be endemic in different parts of the world, we're seeing that in Europe and in North America in more uh, colder climate, well, back then it was colder, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we do expect malaria to actually spread to Europe and to North America uh, sooner than later as well. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. really, really grave because every time I listen to this, <laughs> like I'm doomed, actually my children are doomed. <laughs> So. Well, the other thing is I was saying that the percentage of um, arthropods, insects, uh, the number of species that have been rendered extinct is mm -hmm. dramatically going to change uh, the food chain. Yes. So we've got all sorts of problems on our hands. Yeah. And, you know, I could ask you to pontificate as to how the burden of chronic disease will be borne by society and what we can do to fix it so the healthcare system doesn't collapse. Maybe the simple thing is people need to start taking care of their own bloody health because there aren't yes. going to be enough of us to do anything about all the existential threats to humanity. Yes, yes. No, no 100% agree. I think um, a couple of years ago, Diabetes Canada um, came up with this data that um, Canada spent um, $14 billion 
Uh, and we're not massive. I mean, the, the country size is massive, but the population wise, we're not like that massive. What about 30, 30 something million? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's somewhere there. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, if you compare it to, let's say, US, um, uh, I mean, we are, we're just another province, <laughs> another little yeah. state <laughs> compared to them. Um, the impact that these chronic disease have um, in, uh, in the healthcare is, is unimaginable. I mean, you know, we get healthcare providers complain that they're not, they don't get paid enough or um, they don't have resources or they complain that, you know, it takes too long to get, um, I don't know, certain investigations like MRI, CT scan and so on. Um, but we really have, like you said uh, so correctly, um, if people do take care of themselves better than uh, this health, uh, the burden of chronic diseases will improve as well. Then we probably will have uh, better access to you know, all these uh, investigations or the things that we need to do and medications as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I cannot agree with you more. So given, given all these very depressing existential threats, <laughs> Let's okay. pretend that um, you had three wishes to improve yes. global health. Yeah. What would they be? Yeah, so the first thing, uh, and, and I do wish uh, this from the bottom of my heart, and I hope the war ends, um, not just in Ukraine, but actually, well, mainly in Ukraine, but all over the world. Um, I think um, we do sometimes neglect some of these wars or issues that happen in Africa. Um, then They don't get as much highlights um, and attention as Ukraine. I mean, Please don't get me wrong. I, I think what's happening in Ukraine is probably one of the worst things that I will ever experience. And I'm not even in Ukraine right now, or I'm not even in Europe. Um, but but yeah, I, I really do hope that all the wars will end and they will improve the global health for sure. Uh, the second thing is, yeah, I hope that there will be a, um, an easy access to necessary medications um, all over the world. They'll be really nice. And thirdly, and I do think this is another public health issue, is the racism and discriminations and bias. Um, if they can be improved, then I'm sure it will improve our global health as well. Wow. Um, uh, beautiful thoughts. And I want to thank you for being such a wonderful guest, Dr. James Kim. Thank you for your insights, your wisdom, and uh, your attitude and enthusiasm. It, it's truly been a pleasure to speak with you. And I hope to have you back on again in the future because, you know, you've taught me so much in, in our brief <laughs> time together. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I, thank you. would love to come back sometime. <laughs> That'd be fabulous. So, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. Please join us next week for another episode where I shall either have a similarly amazing guest or shall ramble on my soapbox about something that's caught my attention. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Bye for now.